sky watchers thanks for listening to the royal observatory's look up podcast i'm jake and i'm patricia and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in april in this cosmic diary when looking at faint objects such as stars nebulae the milky way and other galaxies it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. We begin the month of April with a new moon on the 1st, making the start of the month the best time to view fainter deep sky objects without the glare of the moon. The galaxies M81 and M82 better known as Bode's galaxy and the Cigar galaxy, lie close to one another in the constellation of Ursa Major, both sitting just beneath the head of the upside-down bear. As a two-for-one package, both of these galaxies can be observed in the same field of view through a small telescope. M81, or Bode's galaxy, is a stunning spiral galaxy with well-defined spiral arms. Its companion in the sky, M82, is an odd misshapen galaxy. At first glance, it resembles a long cigar being engulfed in a puff of smoke, hence earning its nickname as the Cigar Galaxy. Both M81 and M82 lie around 12 million light-years from the Earth. The two are neighbouring galaxies, with M81's strong gravitational field tugging on M82, distorting its shape. One of the side effects of this interaction is an increase in M82's star formation rate, almost tenfold when compared to an average galaxy. Hence, M82 is appropriately known as a starburst galaxy. Throughout most of this year, Venus will take on its role as the morning star, becoming brightly visible in the early mornings above the southeastern horizon. Currently sitting at a distance of around 129 million kilometers from the Earth, this month Venus is best viewed before sunrise between 5 and 6 a.m., appearing as a bright star to the naked eye. So be sure to get your day off to a great start with a hot drink and a greeting from one of our closest celestial neighbours. As an added bonus, if you keep an eye on Venus during the month, you'll spot another bright object heading towards it. That bright object is the gas giant Jupiter. On the morning of April 30th, the two planets will lie alongside each other in the morning sky. The second half of April will present us with the Lyrid meteor shower, a flurry of meteors emanating from the constellation of Lyra. Meteors are small chunks of debris left in the wake of certain celestial objects like asteroids or comets. When the Earth passes through this trail of material, it scoops up a number of these pieces which fall into the atmosphere. As these small chunks zip through the sky, they burn up, projecting bright streaks of light across the sky known by many as shooting stars. The Lyrids will be active from the 16th up until the 25th, reaching their peak on the night of the 22nd. The best way to view the meteor shower is to head out to a dark site with an unobstructed view of the sky and look towards the south. The shower will be emanating from the constellation of Lyra, but the strikes will spread outwards across the sky. So facing to the south should be enough to see one for yourself. You won't need any kind of specialist equipment, just warm clothes and maybe a hot flask of tea. At their peak, we can expect to see up to 18 shooting stars per hour. 
For those who like a challenge, on the 29th of this month, the asteroid Hygieia will be at opposition, making its closest approach to the point in the sky directly opposite to the sun in the night sky. This is a point where it will appear highest and brightest, but it still won't be easy to find. At the very least, it will require a four-inch telescope, good viewing conditions, and a clear horizon, as it won't rise more than 19 degrees above the southern horizon. If you are up to the challenge, look to the southern sky between Libra and Virgo at local midnight on the 29th to try and spot this elusive space rock. For those in the southern hemisphere, feast your eyes upon NGC 4755, an open star cluster more commonly known as the Jewel Box. This collection of loosely bound stars can be found in the constellation of Crux, reaching its highest point in the sky around midnight local time. It will be visible to the naked eye as a fuzzy smudge in the sky, but through a pair of binoculars, its true form is revealed as a cluster of colorful stars resembling what John Herschel once described as a superb piece of fancy jewelry. Its central part is comprised of around a dozen bright blue stars making up an A-shaped asterism, with the bright red supergiant star DU Crucis at its very center. This open star cluster is best viewed at the start of the month when the moon is still fairly new. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. This is the time in the podcast where Jake and I get to talk about stories that have broken within the recent months, so stories in astronomy or space exploration that we've found really interesting or really exciting. We, of course, talk to you about it. And then it inevitably leads to the most important reason why we actually do this, which is, of course, the Twitter battle. Of course, every month we have a little bit of a Twitter poll where you get to vote on your favorite story. And this is the first time that I'm going up against Jake in the epic Twitter battle. So for those who have been following our podcast, you've been hearing a whole bunch of different voices recently. So it's a pleasure for me to introduce you formally to Jake, who is one of our education officers who's joined us um, taking over Bryony's position because Bryony has gone off to do a PhD. So we miss you, Bryony, but we're so excited that you're getting this opportunity to do a PhD. But Welcome, Jake. And you, I have to say uh, that Jake did a brilliant job in the previous podcast recording it all on his own because timing has been a little bit tight. I didn't have any free time in the previous months. So thank you, Jake, for doing an amazing job. But yes, yeah, so big hello and welcome to you, Jake. Hello. Thank you very much, Patricia. Yes, uh, I was uh, recording the podcast solo last month. And it was a little bit lonely, so of course it's great to have you back, Patricia, and I am ready to go head to head. I'm ready for war. I mean, anyone who's been following our podcast for the past couple of months known that it's what started off as just a friendly competition really has turned into probably 
it probably is a bit of a war. So, um, yes, so let, let the battle commence. So, yes, I'm happy to kick things off uh, this month. And my chosen story is a little bit of a tribute story. It's a tribute to an eminent scientist who passed away within uh, the past uh, month. Uh, so at the time of recording, we are recording this in towards the end of March. So um, this person sadly passed away this month. And that person was Eugene Parker. So that name might ring a bell, if not the whole name, then certainly the surname. And to to sort of start the story off, I need to talk a little bit about our solar system, Jake. So our solar system has got one star in it, which is our sun. And it's the only star in our solar system, as mentioned. It's also the only star that we can really study in great detail because it's close by. All the other stars, a little bit far away from us in order to be able to study in great detail. So understandably, we have a number of spacecrafts in our solar system, as well as ground-based telescopes, that have a sole focus of studying the sun. But of all of these missions, there's one in particular that is brilliant, but also sounds slightly bonkers when you think about it, uh, which is NASA's Parker Solar Probe. So as I said, if you didn't recognize the full name of Eugene Parker, you probably recognize the surname because of NASA's Parker Solar Probe. And it's on a mission to touch the sun. Now, I should point out, it's not going to touch the surface of the sun. I'm sure people are sort of sitting there going, oh, how, how would you touch the surface of the sun or its photosphere? But rather, it's basically going to get closer to the sun than any other spacecraft has done before. At its closest, it's going to come within 6.2 million kilometers from the sun. It gets pretty hot at that distance. Well, it's, it it's pretty hot anywhere near the sun, but especially yes. that close. And I should point out that Mercury, which is the closest planet to the sun, orbits the sun at an average distance of 58 million kilometers. So the probe, 6.2 million kilometers, uh, you know, 6.2 million kilometers from the sun, that is pretty close to, to touching the sun. And the whole reason why we're doing this is because there's quite a lot about the sun and about stars that we're still trying to understand. And the Parker Solar Probe really is designed to revolutionize our understanding of the sun and will also provide us with new and much needed data on solar activity. So why is this important? Basically, it's to improve our ability to forecast major space weather events that could impact life on the Earth. That's a bit of a strange one to think about, because when we think about space weather events, we tend to think of aurorae and that they're quite nice to look at. And that's certainly true. It's very nice to see them. However, major solar related events can actually wreak havoc on systems here on the Earth and in space. So, for example, we're just so reliant on technology. You know, we have satellites in orbit around the Earth. That's just one example. But major space weather events can actually damage that technology. So it's important that we can actually model space weather events as well as the potential damage that they can cause. And the Parker Solar Probe has actually got three detailed science objectives, and one of which is to actually explore what accelerates the solar wind. So the solar wind is a stream of charged particles that sort of blast off the sun and hurtle through the solar system. And 
that's one thing. We've got this mechanism that produces a solar wind, but something else we're trying to understand is the heating that we see in the sun's corona. So the corona of the sun is the outermost part of the sun's atmosphere. And the corona is like this little wispy, tenuous atmosphere that's actually usually hidden by the bright light from the sun, but is really easy to spot during a total solar eclipse. So if you've seen images of a total solar eclipse, you've seen like these sort of wispy features that sort of stream out. That is the solar corona. Now, considering that this corona extends out into space and it's the outermost part of the sun's atmosphere, you'd expect that its temperature would be lower than the surface of the sun. So the surface of the sun around 6,000 degrees. However, the corona has a temperature of millions of degrees Celsius, and we don't understand why. See, yes, that's quite counterintuitive, really, because we know... The core of the sun is about 15 million degrees or so. And yeah. It seems that as you go further out, things begin to cool down. Yes, which but makes then, sense. You kind of expect that, right? Yeah. But then getting even further out to the corona, suddenly it heats up again. And yeah. why would that be? It doesn't seem to make sense it when, does when you first not think make about it. Any sense when you think about it. And it's actually trying to figure this out, which is part of the science objectives of Parker Solar Probe, is understanding the physics that's happening inside the corona, you know, what is driving this sort of increase in temperature that we're seeing. So the Parker Solar Probe, as I mentioned, is named after Dr. Eugene Parker, a heliophysicist, and not just any heliophysicist, he was the person who effectively established that field. And heliophysics is the science of understanding the sun and its interaction with the Earth and the solar system, including space weather. And as I mentioned, he sadly passed away during March, and he made significant contributions to our understanding of the sun. And I should also point out that he's the first person to witness the launch of a spacecraft bearing his name. Now, many spacecraft and missions have been named after people, but that's after they've already passed away. So it's a posthumous sort of thing. But he is the first person to actually witness the spacecraft being constructed and see the launch of it. So that's quite nice that he got to see that happen. Now, in terms of the field of heliophysics, you can actually trace its origin back to 1958. So if you think about it, it is actually a really young field. You know, we, when we think about the sun, when we think of studies being done about it, it's easy to think that, oh, we've been doing it for a very long time. Yes, that's true. But our actual physical understanding of the sun, it's not that old in the grand scheme of things. It, it took us a surprisingly long time to figure out what's happening inside the sun. Yeah. Even hearing that date, was it 1958? 19, 19, 1958. Yeah. 1958. It sounds so recent, especially yeah. when it comes to studying the yeah the largest brightest thing in our sky it's uh, it's really bonkers to think about isn't it you like you think like well we've been doing this for so long but no <laughs> like the real like sciencey meaty bits um fusion we'd had an idea obviously at the start of the 20th century but actually like mechanisms in the sun and stuff like that that's no that's pretty much this field of study was only you know in, in the 1950s um, and so, Eugene Parker was basically at the forefront of that. Yeah, he was one of, he, sort of he the was, founders of the field. He was. Yeah, many people consider him to be that founding father of that field. And, um, you know, in 1958, he was an assistant professor and he submitted a paper to the Astrophysical Journal, which 
anyone in astronomy knows you have to publish. You, you need to publish. You have to be an active researcher. And in this particular paper, he actually showed that if the sun's corona, so if that outer atmosphere of the sun has a temperature of a million degrees, that it would generate an outward flow of particles that would travel out into the solar system at speeds of over a million miles per hour. So he basically predicted that there would be a solar wind. We didn't even know about the solar wind at this point, Jake. This is, you know, in the sense that we didn't have like a tangible mechanism. So basically, at this time, based on observations of comets, okay, comets always have tails. And people recognize that the tail of a comet always points away from the sun. So there was some idea that there must be something moving through space, some maybe some high-speed particles that always resulted in these tails being pushed away from the sun. But it was Parker whose calculations in that paper solidly predicted such outflows coming from the sun. But more importantly, he provided a physical mechanism that would explain how these outflows, how the solar wind is created. Now, for anyone who's ever submitted a paper to a journal for publication, you've got to have it refereed. You'll have people who review the paper, who come back with suggestions on the paper. And there were some people who did not agree with Parker's paper. And Parker himself said that one of the reviewers said, and I quote, well, I would suggest that Parker go to the library and read up on the subject before he tries to write a paper about it, because this is utter nonsense. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty brutal. That's that is brutal. It hurts. You know, for anyone who's had a, a you know, a referee come back on a paper and just, you know, utterly attack everything. Uh, it, it hurts. But luckily for Parker. The editor of that journal disagreed with the reviewer and the paper was published. So he actually got his paper published. Okay. And I should point out that the editor for the journal was none other than Chandrasekhar. So if anyone does white dwarf research or recognize Chandrasekhar as being one of big brains who, who solved, um, you know, the, the mass uh, issue with uh, white dwarfs and that, but yeah. I digress. A great person <laughs> to have on your side. Regardless. This is the thing. I mean, these are big names at the time. So you've got that person on your side. You are absolutely sorted. Um, now, so Parker had this paper out, which is great. He's got this mechanism that he's proposed. What he needs is a way of confirming that there is indeed a stream of particles hurtling through our solar system. And he was very lucky because... All of a sudden, in the 1960s, we had uh, the proper dawn of the era of space exploration. We had robotic spacecraft that we could send out. And in 1962, NASA's Mariner 2 spacecraft, which was actually on its way to Venus, became the first spacecraft to measure the solar wind. Okay, so it measured the solar wind, but more importantly... It did it over a long enough period of time to prove that there is always a stream of particles coming from the sun. Because one of the ideas was maybe it does a little bit and then it stops and then a little bit and it stops. But no, this, this proved there's this continuous stream of particles coming out from the sun. And that's amazing because now, you know, Parker had this paper out. He's now got scientific observations and data that prove 
that his model actually worked because what scientists did is they took this data from Mariner 2 and they applied a whole bunch of models to fit it and they found that Parker's model was the only one that fit the data the best. And remember, his is the model that suggests that the corona has a temperature of a million degrees Celsius. So less than a decade or even less than half a decade after basically founding uh, a new field of physics, we've got yeah. a spacecraft that's not even aiming for the nope. sun or aiming yeah. to study the sun, collecting real data that proves and sort of vindicates Parker's his theory. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I love how this, this this is a classic example of how sometimes in astronomy and space exploration, a mission that might be doing one thing can record data that confirms something else. And we see it happening a lot. You see it happening in, an, in a couple of uh, missions that have been out in our uh, solar system. So that's great. So you've got this confirmation about Parker's model about the sun and there was also another prediction that he had made and that was subsequently confirmed later on. And Parker predicted that um, there would be a spiral shape seen in the sun's magnetic field as you look out across the solar system. So he predicted that the sun's magnetic field would end up producing this sort of spiral shape. And it was confirmed and it's called the Parker spiral. So oh. that's pretty awesome. You, you know, get a shape named after you um, as well. A shape and a probe. Yeah. Yeah. What else can yeah. we name and after? And, you know, founding, and it's such a vital field in astronomy as well. So it, it's just a really nice thing to think about. And as for the Parker Solar Probe mission, it's got quite a long lifespan. So it's doing a couple of things and it has already delivered some amazing results, some of which is not about the sun. Uh, funnily enough, there's a nice little tie-in back to Mariner 2. The Parker probe actually captured its first visible light images of Venus's surface uh, from uh, an orbit it did in July 2020. And it's also done another flyby where it gathered more images of Venus, which actually allowed scientists to create a video of Venus's entire night side. So that's a nice little link back to Mariner nice. 2. It's almost a nice like yeah, back there. a nice little sort of a payment back of a favor. Yeah, know, yeah. The solar probe doing a little bit of study of Venus to sort of pay back Mariner 2 for that, that work yeah. on the sun. So that's quite nice. And, and as for studies of the sun, Parker, uh, the probe actually passed through the corona for the first time in 2021. And it had cameras and all sorts of other equipment that were capturing this uh, passage through the corona. And NASA's released that footage from what the cameras caught. And I would highly recommend people have a look at that. It's amazing that you can actually see the corona because the spacecraft is in it. And, and, it's, it's amazing that this probe is designed so well that one side of it is heated well over thousands of degrees, uh, but the shield is so effective that all the equipment is kept at a nice temperature. It's, yes. it's astonishing. It's an amazing feat of engineering. Yeah, it's stunning, stunning imagery. And in fact, I think if people have heard of the Parker Solar Probe, that's probably some of the imagery that they've seen of it, yeah. especially that view of the Milky Way uh, as so the probe is passing through. Uh, the corona it's incredible oh, it's amazing um so yeah a little bit of a tribute story and you know eugene parker will be sorely missed but he he just leaves behind a field that is just going to grow from strength to strength especially through a mission like the parker solar probe 
And I can't wait to see what else we'll be discovering about the sun over the next couple of years through Parker. So yeah, that's, that's my chosen story for this month, a little bit of a tribute uh, to Eugene Parker. But I'm curious about what you've chosen, Jay, for this month. I think I may have an inkling, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see what you've chosen. Yes. Well, I mean, I'll just say, incredible story and what a legacy left behind by Eugene Parker. But yes, now my story for this, this month's podcast is, well, it's about another spacecraft that is, of course, named after uh, a famous person, named after the former NASA administrator, James Webb. It is, of course, the James Webb Space Telescope, a subject of many conversations, both positive and concerning. Uh, <laughs> When speaking about the mission and its build-up and its delays, of James Webb Space Telescope, of course, the successor in many ways to the Hubble Space Telescope, with a, a bit of a turbulent history, shall we say. That is uh, true. That is true. With development first beginning back sort of in 1996, I believe was when development first began. And this is a collaboration between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. Now, I believe, well, it was first expected to launch at around 2007 with a budget at the time of about 500 million US dollars. But of course, delays, overruns in cost, and also a major redesign back in 2005 meant that, well, it did not launch in 2007. In fact, it didn't launch until Christmas Day 2021. So just this past Christmas. In fact, I remember <laughs> around, I think it was around midday, uh, watching watching the yeah. launch live on television on Christmas Day. Were you watching, Patricia? Of course I was. And I um I just I just wanted it to to one survive the launch. That was the big thing because of course you know people have invested a significant portion of their lives into into this mission and just getting it off the ground. So once that happened, it was like instant relief. But then you could see how the their brains kind of switched from so launch survival mode into okay now we've got to get it to its orbit and then we've got to do a whole bunch of other stuff um but i will say i did also appreciate the very memes that came out on christmas day about james we're potentially crashing into santa that's <laughs> <laughs> yes. launched those, those are very good memes that came out that day yes well and like you say it's not just you know will the launch be successful it's then and then we wait for it to travel out about 1.5 million kilometers to its uh, to where it's going. And then after that, of course, we've got to unfold the thing because it's folded up a bit like origami. And you then have to unfold it, uh, calibrate it, align the mirrors and so on. And was, didn't it have something like three or 400 potential points of failure? Or this something is like that. what I've heard, 300 single points of failure where at any point, if any of those things went wrong, uh, the mission would have failed. There wouldn't have been a way around it. So oh, that's, you the know, risks were high. That was, that was, yeah, those were brave people, I'm just going to say. Well, and amazingly, it seems to have paid off. It seems to have been a complete success so far. And this is partly what this story is about. But I mean, after launch, of course, traveling about 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth to the place where it's going to orbit, a place called a Lagrange point, which is basically a point in space where the gravitational pull of two large masses, in this case, the Sun and the Earth, it's the point where that gravitational force equals the centripetal force 
required for a small object to travel alongside them. So basically this point where you can just orbit around this sort of invisible point in space and quite comfortably orbit the sun alongside the Earth. So basically James Webb can sort of just sit 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth, comfortably orbiting around the sun with it. And it arrived at that particular Lagrange point called L2 on the 24th of January, so pretty much almost an entire month after launch, where presumably fingers and toes were crossed for an entire month. I'm pretty sure it was. I think just to put things into a little bit of perspective, the Hubble Space Telescope is, what, about 540 kilometers above the Earth's surface, I think? Just about. Uh, and James Webb, over a million kilometers away from us. So, yeah, if, if something goes wrong, we, we can't fix it. That's it. I mean, well, of course, when, when Hubble first launched, there were problems with the mirror. There was aberrations yeah. in the mirror. And of course, you could send astronauts you know, yeah. up there to, to fix it. But not with James Webb. Not with James Webb, no. If James Webb breaks, James Webb is broken <laughs> and will remain broken. Oh, that's it. Oh, OK. Um, but I'm assuming, uh, Jake, that it did not break, that it is going strongly is it going strongly jay it's going incredibly strongly in fact it's going better than expected is uh, is what we're hearing but after arriving at its lagrange point at l2 back at the end of january its next task was to unfold its mirrors because it was folded up in order to fit on top of this ariane 5 rocket because the james webb space telescope is a very big thing Unlike the Hubble Space Telescope, which sort of comprised of a, about two and a half meter wide mirror, the James Webb is, well, it's much larger. It's about six and a half meters wide, the, the main mirror on it, made up of 18 hexagonal mirrors that were folded up and then had to unfold. To, which... I'm sorry, this is so terrifying to think of. <laughs> it's a big procedure. <laughs> yeah. And somehow... James Webb did unfold successfully. So these 18 reflective surfaces all managed to align. But then after unfolding, you have to align them so that when light is captured by it, it forms a single clear image, not 18 completely different images from 18 different mirrors, which is effectively what it is. So they needed something to focus on to align all of those mirrors. So they chose a, a, what many would consider an unremarkable star with just the right level of brightness. Now, I'm going to say the name of this star once and only once because <laughs> it's an incredibly long name. It's 2MASS J175540426567. Hereafter referred to as Bob. Hereafter referred to as Bob. <laughs> now, the last half of that name is actually just the coordinates of where it is. It's right ascension and declination in the sky, which is why the name is so incredibly long. But it's about 2,000 light years away, sitting within our own galaxy, and it's in the constellation of Draco. And it's not one of the main stars, but it is within the borders of the constellation. Now, to begin with, just pointing James Webb at this particular star, they ended up getting 18 very blurry images. And then they had to begin making microscopic adjustments to the mirror segments to eventually make those 18 blurry images into one focused image of this star, referred to now as Bob. And what they ended up with was the first fully focused image taken by JWST. And the result, they say, is even better than they expected. 
Now, and this is just meant to be a test image, it's the telescope alignment evaluation image taken on the 16th of March. But what it happens to be is the highest resolution infrared image ever taken from space. Wow, that's, and, that's impressive. And that's just a test. That's just the tester image. Jeez. And now, here is the point uh, where I describe an image in an audio-only format. <laughs> so I would recommend to listeners to take a look at this image if you haven't already seen it. Um, it's been, it has been all over the news, and rightfully so. But this particular image is taken in infrared. So James Webb will be imaging almost entirely in the near-infrared and mid-infrared range of wavelengths, much longer wavelengths than Hubble, which was mostly using visible light and a bit of near-infrared as well. But effectively, this image is looking at a star at a wavelength of about two microns. So it's not light that would be visible to the human eye. So what we're seeing is, uh, is at a wavelength much longer than we can perceive with our own eyes. And right in the foreground of the image is this bright star with six sort of major spikes emanating from it. And now these are what we call diffraction spikes. Now we're probably quite used to seeing Hubble images of stars with these spikes coming out of them. And they usually have four spikes coming out of them. So it's quite unusual with this image to see a star with six spikes. And if people are wondering why, why we have spikes coming out of stars from these images, the reason is because these reflecting telescopes like Hubble and like James Webb have a primary mirror that reflects light onto a secondary mirror. And that secondary mirror is usually suspended in front of the primary mirror using these sort of struts, support struts or veins as they're sometimes called. And then the secondary mirror reflects light into either a viewing lens or a camera. And in the case of uh, James Webb, it's a NERCAM, a near-infrared camera. But basically, as light is coming towards the primary mirror, it bends around those support struts, which is what causes those spikes. We're seeing the diffraction of light around those different uh, support struts. So usually, we're used to seeing four, because in the case of most reflecting telescopes, you have four support struts. And that's the case with the Hubble Space Telescope as well. So we usually see four struts. But in the case of James Webb, we've got only three support struts. So we end up seeing six spikes because every strut produces two spikes. So with Hubble, you usually get two sets of four spikes sort of laying on top of one another. So it looks like four, but it's actually eight and they're layers of two spikes. <laughs> are, we, are, are the listeners keeping up with this? Because this is just, we're going in quite strong on diffraction spikes on uh, on star images now but it's it's actually a good um explanation jake because i know sometimes we do get asked i mean i certainly have after a couple of planetarium shows people will look especially if we've shown them like the hubble ultra deep field and they'll see some of the objects have got these spikes and they always ask about you know what they are and then you can explain to them why you know you're seeing that on those uh, images so in case anyone's ever wondered that's why you see those spikes on some of the images that Hubble have captured. Well, that's it. So we're, we're used to seeing sort of stars with four spikes on them because yeah, there's usually four support struts on these telescopes. Uh, they usually produce two spikes each. So you'd get four rather large ones being overlaid with another one. But then with James Webb, you get six spikes because there's only three struts. And as well as that, having hexagonal shaped mirrors adds to that effect as well. So there's a couple smaller little spikes coming out of this one as well. So that's why, you know, it looks a bit strange that six big spikes coming out of it. But also, 
beyond the star in the background, unexpectedly photobombing this image are actually dozens upon dozens of galaxies. And the, uh, the intention was not to image those galaxies at all. They're just photobombing in the background. But we've got distinct spiral galaxies and strange ellipticals and irregular galaxies in there as well. Just photobombing. And James Webb is going to look deeper and deeper into space to find the, the first ever forming stars or the first galaxy formations. And this is just the beginning and it's better than expected. Well, that's so fantastic to hear because I can imagine after, I say, the, the time that's been invested into the project and the, just the complexities of this particular telescope, to have a test image that is just performing beyond what they're expecting. I, I can only imagine the excitement now about what we're going to see when it actually starts its proper science campaign because obviously everything now um this is all just doing calibrations now across all the instrumentation i would assume going forward until we start proper science well this is the thing yes so that was just a test a first alignment of the primary mirrors they still need to calibrate and align all the other instruments as well because there's multiple instruments on board so they still have to get all of that out of the way before they actually begin doing research so I believe it's around June, uh, yeah, so I think in total, so. about six months yeah. after the launch, that it's going to be fully commissioned, ready to begin doing some oh, work. That's so exciting. So we've got that to look forward to. And it's operational lifespans, about five to 10 years, but it could, much like Hubble, keep going onwards for you know, at least 20 years or so. Because, of course, Hubble has lasted longer than it was uh, expected to. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's it's just interesting, like, comparison-wise, as you mentioned, the fact that Hubble had that unfortunate flaw, um, and that when they released that very first image, the fact that it was not performing as expected was devastating to all the, the people who had worked on Hubble, but as you said, that luckily enough, they could correct it, and it's still going strong. It's, it's astonishing to think that Hubble is still in operations. It's what it's past 30 years now of operations about, i think yes over 30 years old that's amazing and so and that's the point is it's 30 years old which means all of its equipment on on board isn't 30 years old but likely older than that because all of that stuff would have been built a long time ahead of you know being housed inside that telescope so it's wow it's amazing to think about and i'm so excited to see what we get from james webb I really and truly am, especially just looking, uh, I say, as you encourage everyone, please go and look at this image because it's just remarkable to see. And I, I know from posts I've seen, people are already scrutinizing all those little galaxies that you can see and looking at what features they can discern just from this test image. It's, oh, it's amazing. Yes. Well, as well, I, uh, I saw a comparison between just some of the, the galaxies in the background of this image compared to ground-based telescope observations of those same galaxies. And the difference in resolution is so noticeable. Even just James Webb having these galaxies photobombing in the background of the focus of a different part of the picture is so much more detailed than powerful ground-based telescopes trying to look specifically at those background galaxies. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, so exciting. But now I suppose the question is, something we could maybe speculate about, Jake. Do you think 
that maybe, I mean, there'd be a lot of challenges involved in this, but do you think there could potentially be the idea to have a servicing mission for, for James Webb in the future that they could potentially think about sending astronauts out there? I mean, I know it's sort of been, I've seen some interesting discussions on the internet about the idea of that maybe it's something to consider if James Webb does perform as well as it's doing, at, that we could try and, you know, maintain it and give it a sort of a longer lease of life. I mean, what do you, what do you think about, about it's those certainly, Well, It's certainly possible. I mean, it's a lot closer than Mars is. And Good a point. lot of yeah. space agencies have their eyes set on Mars. And James Webb is a lot closer than Mars is. So it certainly would and should be possible to do. And I think in the long run, if they want to keep James Webb going over several decades, then I think that's something they certainly would consider. Though if we were to service James Webb in the next decade or so, it would be the furthest humans have ever traveled. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. It yeah. would be about, uh, well, at least four times further away than the moon tends to be so actually that might be a good idea in terms of we want to send people to mars let's let's start the moon first and then james Webb, but then maybe maybe we'll go on to mars it'd be it'd be a good practice just to get a little bit closer every time just a little bit closer oh oh go james Webb. we're so proud of this telescope i know it's weird when people talk about these things as being living you know, units, but you get so attached to these spacecraft as well and to these missions and, oh, so, so spectacular. But that was a brilliant story, Jake. I think you've done a very good job doing an audio description of, of an image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would encourage all the listeners to go and look at the image if they haven't already. Don't just take that description as, as your only source of knowledge about it. Uh, definitely go look at that image. And hopefully I described it in a way that <laughs> makes sense when you actually look at it. But it's an incredible thing. And that's just the beginning. That's not the be all and end all of James Webb's capabilities. James Webb will be able to see things 100 times fainter than the Hubble Space Telescope can see. 100 times fainter. So we're going to see some the most incredible images ever taken, in my opinion, in the next few years. Uh, it's going to be incredible. Oh, and we look forward to it. It'll be something that we get to talk about, which is always great. And sharing that with everyone as well. And just thinking about the, all the potential discoveries that James was going to make and how it will revolutionize our understanding of a lot of things in the universe, because we still have a lot of questions that we have to answer. So an astronomer's job is just never done, is it, Jay? It's never done. It never will be, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunately. No, that's probably a good thing. Because, of course, we always want to discover more. Wouldn't it be terrible if astronomy was suddenly finished, that we'd discovered it all? I was just thinking about that. Like, we just come into work one day and someone's like, well, we've just answered the last question. So great job, guys. And we'll yeah, just We finished home. astronomy. Yeah. That's it. Go home. <laughs> Science is done. Science is done. Oh. Yeah. Well, on that dramatic bombshell, <laughs> we, uh, there we have it, our two uh, stories for this month. So do keep an eye out on our Twitter account at ROG Astronomers in the first week of the month because we will have the poll active so you can vote for your favorite story. And then we will let you know who wins that epic Twitter battle at the start of the next month's podcast. So uh, as always, if there's anything you'd like us to talk about or if there's something you've maybe read about and go, well, that would actually be a great story. Why not let us know? You can uh, interact with us via Twitter at Origin Astronomers. You can send us a DM there. Um, but with that, 
we have reached the end of this month's podcast and thank you all to listening and thank you to jake for as i say doing a sterling job as a the your solo recording in the previous month and then doing your first joint podcast with someone no i think you did a fantastic job and look forward to recording the next one with you as well there we go fantastic yes uh, we'll see you all next month for more updates of course it's a good thing that astronomy doesn't finish because then we wouldn't have a podcast so we'll have more news that is true. next time mm-hmm.